people are here, and we find ourselves thirsting once more for a word, some word, good word from you, hungering for you. So now, oh God, we pray that the meditations of my heart, the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of our heart will be acceptable to you. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. It was at the heights of COVID-19. The grocery store is nearly empty by this time, and a woman in her 70s is pushing her shopping cart down one aisle, and suddenly there's a noise of metal hitting metal, clang, 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 and, and somebody looks behind them, and this old lady in her 70s, turns into demolition derby driver um, and rams her, you know, her um, shopping cart into another shopping cart, the shopping cart of a woman half her age. She screams from behind her face mask, too muffled for anyone to understand. And the young woman, the young woman stands there straight as a pole, silent and staring down at her attacker, not backing down. A young man joins the fray, and this young man in his 20s steps in, and he intervenes, but he, he immediately takes sides. Um, uh, he goes, uh, he, 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 he talks to the older lady and, and tells her, she's going to get you sick, lady. She's going to get you sick, lady. Stay away from her. She's going to, say, to get you sick. That's how the scene played out. And, and I wonder, what are the chances that at least one of these individuals that day in this half-empty um, half uh, place, what are the chances that anyone or all of these individuals were Christians? Statistics say that one out of five people in the world are Christians, or at least they claim to be Christians. And I believe there are, there's almost, uh, what, eight billion people out there in the world today? But statistics tell us that that ratio is greater in the United States. Two out of three persons or people in the United States claim they're Christians, which means, which means that the chances, the chances are that two out of three of those individuals that day in that grocery store were Christians. Chances are. At least on a quieter day. <laughs> At least on a quieter day. I saw a YouTube video a couple days ago about a young man who flies into a rage uh, because he served the wrong pizza. Um, And of course, you know, situations like this, you know, this is, you know, a great opportunity for YouTubers to start filming. And so someone pulls his smartphone out and starts recording 
uh, with his phone. And this young man, this young man who, who, you know, who flies into this massive rage, grabs a chair and smashes the counters and smashes the tables and, and smashes the soda dispenser and, and glass windows. Glasses flying everywhere. And in a fit of rage, he jumps over the counter and starts attacking the workers behind the counter. And, and he, gets, he gets driven out by the owner of, of this joint. And, but he comes back. He comes back in his car madder than hell. He turns into another demolition derby driver as he rams his car into this pizza joint. And the lucky YouTuber who captures all of this goes viral and cashes in. Cashes in on the failure of someone to appreciate the value of joy under pressure. In 1 Peter, our text today, in 1 Peter, we gain a deeper appreciation of what joy is, of what it means to be joyful under intense pressure, of what it means not to, not to give in, not to go in enemy mode, how to stay in, in love mode, so to speak, while you're under intense, intense pressure. In our text today, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, um, we're given this big picture of what joy does to us when it attaches itself to our situations when it, it attaches itself to our feelings and to our attitudes. Let's go there for a few minutes of our time and start our, our, study, our, our study today by reading once again that whole, that whole text. Let's take a look. Here's what it says from the New Living Translation. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Actually, you know, that, that last sentence I just read to you, Actually, you know, this is, I, I, if I may, disagree a little bit with how the, the translator, translators of the NLT um, puts it, because, you know, it's reading a little bit too much, I think, to what the text is saying there. Because the, 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 the focus here, if you read your, your other, other versions, especially the older ones, I think it, it captures it even better there. That the glory and the honor is not going to, to you, to me, as much as it is to Jesus Christ in the day when he is revealed to the whole world. That's what it means. And then continuing on in verse 8, it says, You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Within these few verses, we find um, a, true, you know, a true appreciation of joy and, and how joy can change things while we're under pressure cookers, a type of, of, of situations in our lives. I first discovered what joy means, or what joy is. Some 30 years ago, I was in college back then, 
And it was around a time when my father died. You see, my father lived a very stressful life. He, he, as the saying goes, he drank like a sailor and smoked like like a chimney. And he had hypertension, but he refused to go see a doctor. And so I knew it was just a matter of time before his lifestyle caught up with him. He was tethered to... Um, he was tethered to the desk, to his work desk all day long. He, had, he didn't exercise. I knew it was just a matter of time. And the pressure inside of me was building, was building, and I couldn't bear the thought that it was just a matter of time before I was going to see my father dead. So one night I couldn't sleep. All these things were swimming in my head, and, and I couldn't sleep. So one night I lay there in bed, and because I couldn't sleep, I, I started to pray. And my, pray, my prayer was simple enough. I begged God, I begged God to do something about my dad's situation. I couldn't see, I couldn't see or stand bearing, seeing the th- or, or bearing the thought of my dad slowly killing himself with his, with his lifestyle. And so I said to, I said to God in this, in this prayer, please God, make him stop. Or if not, please warn me when the day comes. It was a strange prayer. And I, even to this day, found it strange that I even prayed that way. What change would have had, had made for if God were to answer that crazy prayer, prayer of mine? And so I said amen to that short prayer. I went to sleep And I forgot all about it for about a year. A year passes by. And one night during Christmas holiday, I was home for Christmas. It was just me and my dad. The rest of my family were in San Diego. I went back to the Philippines, joined my dad there in the Philippines. And one night during that Christmas holiday, I I dreamt that something devastating was about to happen to my dad. It was very clear. It was very lucid. It was very clear. It was all in symbols, but it was, all, it was very clear, point by point, that it was about my dad, that something, was, something dr- dramatic, something devastating is about to happen to my dad. And so I wake up, and I was all in, you know, I was sweating, and I, and I, was, and, and I was crying. And then I remember the prayer I said about a year before. And I started asking the question, has that time really arrived? Did God actually listen to that crazy prayer of mine? Could it be? The day came and went, nothing happened. And the following night, I had another dream. It was essentially the same dream. Again, in symbols, I clearly saw that something dreadful is about to happen to my dad. And so I I believe at that time, I said to myself, so it has finally arrived. So for for a period of about a week, I waited to see what was going to happen. Nothing happened. The first night, first day, nothing happened. Second day, nothing happened. Third, fourth, nothing happened. Fifth day, nothing happened. On the sixth night, sixth day, nothing happened. On the sixth night, I went to bed. I went to bed. And at around 4 o'clock the following morning, before the rooster crows, they say, I got woken up by someone, and I thought I was actually dreaming. I thought it was another dream, maybe a third dream. 
As a matter of fact, I was woken up by someone, by someone who told me that something, something bad had happened to my dad. He was taking a shower at four o'clock in the morning and he had suffered a massive stroke in the shower. And as soon as that happened, everything that I saw in the dream dovetailed with what was going, what, what happened to me on that day. And 10 days later, my dad was dead. It was the saddest and most painful time of my life. But strangely, it was the most joyful time of my life. No, I wasn't going around willing myself to sing Kumbaya, my Lord, or, or singing all those praises and, and, and making it sound so put on or, or artificial. It wasn't like that at all. I didn't try to be joyful. I was simply joyful. It was the strangest feeling to be crying and joyful. I remember sitting alone one night in the parking lot uh, outside of the hospital where my dad lay dying. And I remember the bodily sensation I had. I remember the bodily sensation I had of being surrounded by an invisible, peaceful presence, like a warm blanket, someone draped over my back. It was a crazy feeling to be going through, to be crying and to be feeling at peace. As if someone I couldn't see was giving me the biggest bear hug in the world I've never had. I was crying, but I was in peace. I was in pain, but I, was, I, I, I never felt that I was alone. I felt that I was in the presence of someone I loved most. And that someone loved me even more. And that someone was glad to be with me. That was the, what I felt in those times, the saddest time in my life. Time and again in those fateful days, God went out of his way to remind me that he loved me. He reminded me, he reminded me of who I was to him. And in the darkest moment of my life, I knew who I was. I was his child. And I was loved and I felt that even in the deepest, darkest moment of my life, I was home. And because of that, I felt joy in my heart, even if I was really, really sad. And you know, this gave me the energy. This gave me the energy in those days, in, that, in, in those faithful days, to behave as a child of God under the most intense pressure I've ever known, intense pain I'd ever known in my life. Joy, and, and, and joy kept me from alienating others around me as I grieved. I remember as a pastor many years ago of watching a family get un unravel in the face of searing pain at the loss of, of one of their ch uh, children or one of the members of the family. And the father secluded himself and over a period of two years destroyed his entire family. He alienated himself because he couldn't handle the pain. And he lived in enemy mode. Joy kept me from alienating others around me. 
It was the most trying time in my life, and my family was very broken. There was a lot of pain that was reverberating within my family in those days. My mom and dad, my, my dad and my brother. But joy kept me afloat. It gave me the energy to be who I am. Joy kept me from turning into a beast straight from hell. Of course, what you're hearing from me today is, you know, it took 30 years, 30 years to, to develop. What I'm giving, what I'm doing to you now is I'm handing all of this to you on a silver platter, as it were, because I didn't understand what I was going through. I didn't have sufficient understanding to know that what I was going through was joy under pressure. I mean, I didn't, I didn't sit there and say, ah, yes, I'm being joyful under pressure. I didn't understand what I was going through. I only knew what I felt. I didn't have enough theology. I was not taught in seminary, in my studies of Scripture, what joy really is and what it does to all of us under pressure. I didn't have sufficient understanding to put it all together in one coherent theology, an understanding, and even a worldview. 30 years of looking back to this strangely wonderful and cataclysmic event in my life, 30 years is what it took. It took. And I think finally, I think finally I understand. I finally get it. And I'm handing it to you in the hopes that somehow it can be of use to you. When you go through your own pain and suffering and trials and tribulation, in the hopes that you don't turn yourself into a demolition derby driver when pain is, becomes unbearable. And it took, it took reading a book. That's who I am. I'm always reading a book. I, I love reading a book. It's, 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 it gives me the opportunity to live a thousand lives, to see a thousand perspectives and to piggyback on somebody else's perspective, vicariously living somebody else's experiences. I read a book recently, very recently as a matter of fact, which helped me fully understand, put everything together, and it helped me understand our text today in 1 Peter. In the book titled The Other Side of the Church, the authors explain what joy is and what joy does when we're under stress and we're under a lot of pressure. They say that joy is a feeling, but it is more than a feeling. It attaches itself to things, to feelings. Actually, have a, oh, where did I, okay, here it is. Joy, they say, is, a, is the feeling we get. Now, I want you to get this very, very carefully, okay, because we're going to, this is kind of a, um, if we can get, get through this and, uh, and, and apply this, we, it will dramatically change us, because I know for a fact that it has changed me. Hopefully, it will change you as well. Joy is the feeling we get when we see the sparkle, sparkle in someone's eye which tells us how glad this person is gl- There it is again. My English has failed me once again. How, how does this happen? Slow down. Slow down. 
Joy is the feeling we get when we see the sparkle in someone's eye, which tells us how glad this person is to see us and to be with us. From the moment we're born, this is how God wires us. You imagine those parents, you imagine the joy that your, your, your baby feels when you go peekaboo. Can you imagine the joy seeing the face of your, seeing your, your, your baby's face light up just by doing this? Because essentially that is what joy means. That's what triggers joy. Someone's face that tells you they're glad to see you. They're, they're glad to be with you because they love you and you love them. That is what triggers joy in an individual. Joy is transported through someone's face, someone's eyes, someone's voice, and someone's presence. Joy is not a theological jargon. It is not a theological idea. It is someone's face looking at you, telling you how glad they are to be with you, to see you. And that in of itself is fuel for you. Fuel for you to live a life where you belong. To live a life where you know you can be yourself, your true self, because someone cares you, cares for you, and loves you. Joy is nonverbal, and it is deeply relational. Joy is what keeps us connected with the people we love and the people who, lo- who love us in times when we need it most. Joy is the surge of energy, the fuel that keeps us in love mode. Boy, I, I don't know, I should have had somebody check on my English here. Once again, my prepositions are failing me. Joy is the energy, the fuel that keeps us in love mode when we find ourselves in pressure cooker situations in life. Joy, in other words, is the fuel that runs our faith. Without it, we'll be running on empty. And the chances of turning into creatures from hell, when we're under a lot of pressure, under a lot of pain, when we're in these massive trials and tribulations in our life, the chances of, our, of, of us turning into someone from hell increases dramatically. How do we increase our joy? And here's where we find our text gives us an, uh, another key to, you know, to living uh, you know, this, this joy uh, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain. Um, these, actually, these two go hand in hand. Uh, I said to you that, um, that joy is the fuel that runs our faith. But there is another crucial element that goes along with that. If joy is the fuel that runs our faith, love is the glue that, keeps us, that gets us going in the direction we need to go. So love and joy together worked hand in hand to provide us with fuel and with the glue to keep us attached to the people that love us and to the people that we love most and to the God, to the right God who loves us 
and his glad to be with us. Love gets us going in the right direction and joy fuels the ride. Can you remember still the joy you felt when you first became a Christian? The story, I get the story from the same book that I, that I read, The Other Side of Joy, where one of the authors describes, um, describes the joy that he felt when he first became a Christian. Let me um, read to you a couple of uh, paragraphs, perhaps, from, from, from this book. When I first encountered Jesus, the author, one of the authors of this book says, when I first encountered Jesus in the middle of the night as a 19-year-old, I felt a mixture of hope and excitement. I also felt a presence like a warm emotional light. The excitement was not only mine but his. I could feel that Jesus was excited about what had happened, what had just happened between us when I gave my life to him. I cannot prove this because it was all nonverbal. He spoke No audible voice or words to me. I had only read six chapters of the New Testament, so I had little biblical basis for anything I was feeling. I simply felt that Jesus was happy and smiling at me, and it felt like a warm light shining on me. When I woke up the next morning, I still felt the light, he says. Um... I had a summer job in downtown Denver delivering blueprints on a bicycle. As I went through my day, I was in a heightened state of spiritual awareness, awareness and excitement. I felt like I was floating 10 feet above my bicycle seat. I rode past a light pole that had a sticker on it that read, Jesus loves you. And he says, you know, that sticker, come to think of it, that sticker's been there for maybe as for as long as I've been running my route. But I never noticed it. He says, that day I did notice. I had ridden by this same pole every day that summer, but I'd never seen the sticker before. I couldn't stop, I couldn't stop the words from coming out of my mouth. I couldn't stop myself from saying, I agree, Jesus, I agree, you love me. I had been a Christian for only seven hours, he says, and I was already enjoying the first ingredient of, of a healthy soil. I discovered what it means to be joyful. So over the following year and few years as he spent his years in, 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 in college working and going to school and, and everything, he discovered the depth of joy as he surrounded himself with people who were, who were experiencing the same joy that he was experiencing, who were in love with God the way he was in love with God. And together they, you know, they, um, they increase each other's joy, just spending time with each other, doing Bible studies together, and being glad to see each other, to have that face, to, have to, to, to be received by that face that is beaming with, with, with gladness to see you. It's really that important. So when somebody says to you or reminds you how important our greeters are. It's actually true. And, it's, and, and, and it is, it is um, scientifically proven that when somebody greets you at the door of the church, when you see that face, that smiling face, that is telling you that that person is glad to see you, it gives you a rush, a rush of energy to keep coming back for more. 
It is that same energy that helps you, that helps you stay within the bounds of God's love when things are rough in your life. Over the period of the following year, he says, I went through Bible studies and my joy kept increasing and it helped me get through some rough moments in my life. It's, um, it's quite simply, his joy grew as he spent more and more time with those who loved him and who were glad to see him. And this is what our text tells us. And quite simply, our, te- our text tells us that when we are joyful under pressure, when we are joyful under pressure, Our faith is not only purified, our Lord is also glorified. And our bonds with Him and with each other, those bonds are fortified. Joy, without joy, where would we be? Without joy, we'd be demolition derby drivers. ramming our carts into someone else's when the pressure gets too intense. But if we are to be bearers of good news, of new creation, as Scripture tells us we are, if we are to be good news ourselves, we must discover what joy is, and we must learn to live it so that our faith can be purified, our Lord can be glorified, and our bonds with Him and with each other can be fortified. And that, my friends, is what salvation means. Let us pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face, His smiling face, shine upon you and be gracious to you. May you feel the smiling face of God shining upon you and may it energize you every moment of your every day. In Jesus' name, amen.